You're listening to a production of Swanson Media. Hey everybody, Selen Radio is teaming up with Tattoos Cure Cancer to fight cancer one tattoo at a time. Every month on behalf of the listeners, Sullen Radio will donate to Tattoos Cure Cancer 50% of all contributions made to support this art-driven podcast. Follow at Tattoos Cure Cancer and at OG Joe Swanson for updates on this podcast partnership. To support both the podcast and help Tattoos Cure Cancer fight a disease that affects our tattoo community daily, you can donate any amount now via PayPal to OGJoeSwanson at gmail.com. This is Sullen Radio with Joe Swanson, the premier art-driven podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Joe Swanson with Sullen Radio. I am here with uh, a man who's coming up on his 60th year of making tattoos, Rick Walters. How are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, I appreciate you coming and sitting down with me today and, and doing this interview. Um, it's, it's great for me as a tattooer to, to talk to you and... and um, here's some of the stories that have gone on in your career. So it, it's cool for me to sit here and, and talk with you, Rick. Well, thank you. Yeah, we're having a good time. Yeah, for sure. Um, you're coming up on 60 years of tattooing. You, um, that's a lot of history. You're moving forward with a new shop right now. Um, how's that been going for you? Yeah, the, the new shop's like six months old right now, and yeah, we're putting a little money in the bank and paying the bills, so, hell, you, you know, the first six months, that's doing pretty good, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking with, uh, I was talking with Greg James yesterday, and, uh, you know, he opened up his shop, too, and says it's different these days, it, different than running a shop like you ran Grimm's for a long time. Uh, how different is it nowadays owning, owning your own shop? Well, when I first had tattooing, it was like... Uh, Oh, hell, 12, 15 shops in all of L.A. and Orange County. And most of them were down on the Pike in Long Beach. Uh, they had one in L.A., one in the Valley. There was uh, Laguna Tattoo, I guess, and one in Santa Ana. But most of the shops were down on the Pike in Long Beach. And consequently, uh, you know, that Long Beach was like the ta cat tattoo capital of the world, just about. You know, and... Uh, now there's 3,000 tattoo shops in L.A., Orange County. So, yeah, it's a little bit different. There's, times times yeah. have changed. Well, there's more demand, but not as much demand as there is tattoo shops nowadays. They're sort of pricing themselves right out of business. Do you think that's going to change in the, in the future, or do you think it's just going to keep rolling? Yeah, sooner or later, the new guys are going to figure out they're not making a living, so they'll have to figure out something get else. on down the road and do something else you know the the older guys and been around for a while you know we'll probably be fine but yeah um what was it like for you uh starting out you said you did your first tattoo at 10 years old yeah and when did you start um tattooing on a, on a regular basis how did you get into into the business yeah. well when i was 10 i was just hand poking shit on all the neighborhood kids and, Driving uh, the parents crazy. Oh, yeah, the mothers. I was the kid they told, stay away from that guy, you know what I mean? But uh, when I was 19, uh, we opened a shop. Me and this kid named Frankie opened a shop up in Lawndale. And then from there, it was downhill. I've been tattooing professionally since 65. Yeah. What, what was that first uh, first shop at 19 years old? 
what experience had you had other than hand poking to um, to work with? Well, I had I had bought a machine, and so I'd been tattooing with the machine for a couple of years prior to that. But I still didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, it, it was just sort of hit and miss. And I I'd go down to the to the pike at Burt Grimm's and watch the guys down there and pay them to tattoo me so I could figure out what the hell they were doing. You know what I mean? And then uh, eventually. Uh, I got to be good friends with a couple of them, so they helped me out a little bit. How, how did you end up at uh, Grimm's then, eventually? How long did you have your own shop before you were you were there? Well, I had the, the little shop in Lawndale only for a couple of years, and then I worked with uh, Mike Pike's dad, J.R. Grove, in uh, Gardena for, oh, hell, two or three years in the 70s. And then... Uh, his old lady was a pain in the ass. I just got tired of it, and I told him, you know what, bro, I love you, but your old lady's a nightmare. I got to get the hell out of here. So I went back to work in a machine shop, and Colonel Todd asked Phil Sims if he knew anybody who was looking for work, and Phil told him, hey, fucking Rick's working in a goddamn tat in a machine shop, man. Call him up. And I went to work for Todd and Bob out in uh, La Puente, which is like East L.A., and I worked out there for three years and then eventually got transferred down to the main shop and at Burt Grimm's in 1978 and worked there from 78 to 2003. Who was, wor who was working there when you first started? Oh, let me think. When I first went down there in 78, it was uh, oh, Colonel Todd. And I think Bobby and Bob and Larry were getting ready to leave. They. They were there for a little while when I first went to work there, but then they went to Texas and opened two shops in Texas. But uh, it was me and Colonel Todd and uh, uh, Jane Nabemeyer, uh Gary Fink. Who else was there? Uh, you know, I think that was it right then, Gary Fink and Jane and me and Todd. And then Todd, he only lasted for a little while. He was the manager when I first went there. And he went to 29 Palms. Or first he went to San Diego and opened a shop, and he didn't, he didn't like it down there, so he eventually moved to 29 Palms because it's like the largest marine base in the United States. And when he left and went to San Diego, I took over being manager. And he was still one of the bosses, but he was never there. But I ran the shop, and he'd come and get the money and then send it to Wanda. Yeah. But uh, I ran the place for a number of years, shit, almost 25 years, because yeah. he left right after I got there. What was, the, what was the vibe of that shop when you first went there? I mean, this was back when it was rough and tumble, man. You were, it was a different ball game. Yeah, you had to carry a gun and had a big stick just in case. They'd call that the manager, right? Yeah, the, I had a... I took a piece of uh, bamboo that we used for making uh, a gaff on the fishing boat and made it just like the fishing boat gaff, but then I wrapped it with uh, coil wire, actually, at the end. And like The last eight inches was wrapped with coil wire and then lacquered, and I filled it with uh, the first joint of the bamboo was filled with lead. Oh, wow. And had a hand strap on it. It was all lacquered. So, yeah, you didn't want to get hit with that. Mm -mm. No, that, that, that will send you to a, a trip 
Yeah. <laughs> a trip that you don't want to take down to the hospital. No. <laughs> <laughs> How many guys got the, the mean side of that stick? Most of the people, you just bang it on the counter. They woke they go up around pretty it. quick. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Shit, man. Um, you know, it's... It's cool to hear. Uh, it's cool to hear those stories. You know the uh, the culture of that shop back then and how crazy it was. And um, you know, I've I've seen a an interview with you on uh, YouTube talking about a time where you chase somebody, got you know, a guy out shooting shooting at him down in the middle of the street, and you know, yeah. stuff like that that would never happen these days. No. You know. Back in those days, though, you could get away with that shit. They didn't. They didn't have video cameras and, you know, computers and all that sure. shit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. What happened was the guy didn't pay. I was tattooing him, and I did a. It was a Harley design, actually. It was an eagle standing on a shield. And he acted like he was getting sick before I put the yellow in, which is the last color to go in. And so I told him, I said, "If you're gonna get sick, go puke outside. Don't be, sh you know." stinking up the shop so he goes outside and you know, four or five minutes later i asked the helper i said hey go find that guy and see what the hell's going on we're gonna finish that tattoo and get paid and he goes outside and he says well he says i don't see him nowhere so i go outside and about a half a block up there's a little side street and he was getting in a car on the side street uh, i'm running down the street and uh we had two shops on the pike at that time. We had the Burt Grimm's, and then right right down the street there was the Rose where Mark Mahoney worked. Mm -hmm. And I'm yelling at this guy, and Mark's coming out of the shop to see what the hell's going on. And I pulled a little 25 out of my boot, and I popped it around over his head, which at that time there was nothing out there. It was just the ocean, you know what I mean? So it was like just shooting over the water. It was no <laughs> right. big deal. And uh, so the silly son of a bitch, instead of just going down that side street, which he could have done real easily, and get away. He came at you. He spun a U-turn in the middle of that little side street, come down Chestnut and tried to run my ass over in the middle of the street. So I sidestepped the car. Gun was like maybe a foot from his head, and it was jammed. So I cleared the, cleared the gun out, and I shot the rest of the clip through the back window of the car, blew the windshield out of it. There was wow. like five people in the car, so who knows, you know. Damn. But they took off up the hill and went around the corner. But needless to say, that $45 tattoo cost him a whole bunch more than $45. Absolutely. Just replacing the windows would be probably two, 300 bucks. Right, right. <laughs> Karma was a bitch that day. Yeah. <laughs> For him. Yes, Dang. sir. Well, we were talking a little bit before we uh, started recording about your time uh, playing some music back in uh, the 60s, you said, and yeah. had a good opportunity to, uh, you know, be friends with some guys who became famous musicians. You knew that oh, yeah. before that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the Beach Boys. Um, mm -hmm. How did you meet those guys, or were they just neighborhood yeah, fellas? They, I grew up in Hawthorne, and that's where they lived. They lived on the other side of town. Uh, I went to a, a dance in the seventh grade at the junior high down the street from my house. And, uh, you know, I was 
pretty much a rebel even when I was a little kid. I got thrown out of grade school for drinking. Yeah. So we're at this this dance, right? And at the time, I was like a lowrider type guy, and I come up on this surfer kid. And so we were going to go out back and fight, right? Because the lowriders and the surfers didn't get along too well. Back in those days, they called the lowriders hodads. Now I guess they call them greasers, but back then it was hodads. And uh, so we go out inside, and we're we're getting ready to get getting this brawl, man. And the surfer kid tells me, he says, "You want to smoke a joint?" <laughs> yeah, sure. So we got loaded and drank a little bit. And figured, yeah, this is cool. Fuck that, all that bullshit about hodads and surfers. Man. Fuck fighting. We're going to party, right? Yeah. And so that was Dennis Wilson. We ended up being, like, best friends. And it was funnier than shit because people would just trip out because he was a full-on surfer. And I had, uh, even in the seventh grade, I had a, a chopped mercury that I had built because I, I worked in a body shop when I was real young. Yeah. And me and the kid that owned the body shop's dad, dad owned the body shop. We chopped the thing and did all kinds of crazy shit to it. So by the time I got in high school, we'd, we'd go down to the beach in my chopped lowrider and go surfing, and people would just trip out. You know what I mean? Because there's this lowrider guy surfing for one thing, and then here's the surfer riding around in a lowrider car. <laughs> it was pretty funny. We both had a good time. But I'd known him since, like, the seventh grade. We ended up being really good friends. And when they started the band, I actually was playing drums professionally in another band. And they wanted me to play drums, and I told them, no, nah, no, nah, I can't do that. I'm already, you know, it was a bunch of kids I went to school with, you know what I mean? They were nobody at that time. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, I'm making money playing drums. Man, I ain't going to fucking quit doing this to go hang out with a garage band. Right. And needless to say, they become the Beach Boys, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, which is probably the most famous band in the United States. Wow. But, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of encounters like that, though. Being a biker and a musician over the years, it probably helped because, like, we were partying in Manhattan Beach, and Jim Morrison moved like three doors down the street from one of my buddies, and we partied with him, you know, just because we were bikers, and, and we had all the good drugs, and, you know, he wanted to party with us. He, right. At that time, the doors were nobody. They were just a little local band that maybe cut a record, you know. Mm -hmm. They didn't really get real famous until after he died. Mm. You know, they played a few things that were sort of halfway getting them on the road to being famous, but, right. yeah. You know, they like all the other bands like that that happened to. Uh, they released a bunch of records after he died, you know, from yeah. the recordings. You know, talking about it before, it's crazy to think that a lot of those different people in that time, they they all uh, they all passed from the same from the same thing, and you know, being around that, it was not something that. That they normally people did, think yeah. that they normally did yeah and you know there's there's you can go deep on the conspiracy theories of it all but who um, knows yeah yeah who knows who yeah. knows well i know for a fact that jim morrison wouldn't have shot heroin yeah you know i partied with him for 
a long time, and he wanted no part of doing downers at all. Yeah. And I have friends up in Frisco that knew Janice Joplin, and they said the same thing. There's no way in hell that she would have shot anything. She was she took pills and drank, you know, and they they both died around six months apart, you know. So who knows what really happened? But yeah, looked a little suspicious. Right. <laughs> what was it like working with? Uh, what was it like working with Bertram? What was he like as uh, a tattooer? I never really worked with Bert. I hung out when he was there. Mm-hmm. By the time I worked down there, it was Bob Shaw and okay. Colonel Todd. Yep. But I started getting tattooed there when I was real young. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad took me down there when I was 14 because I had hand-poked a, some writing on my leg. It was all fucked up, said born to raise hell. And uh, back in those days, they you know they would, could get away with tattooing minors if they, you know parents was cool with right. it or whatever. And... Uh, so they covered it up with a Black Panther. Uh, actually, Zeke Owens did the tattoo. And so that was my first professional tattoo. And then once you got a professional tattoo, then you'd go in any of the shops and show them, hey, well, I got this you know, already. Oh, okay. And they'd tattoo you. Hmm. So after that, I got tattooed by Owen Jensen and uh, Bob Shaw and Tom Yeoman, Don Nolan, Phil Sims, Mark Reynolds. Wow. You know, a whole bunch of yeah. fairly well-known tattooers nowadays, yeah. but they're, most of them are dead. Yeah. One of, my, one of my favorite machines I've ever used was a left-handed Don Nolan machine. No, I still guy. talk to Don all the time. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he's in Wisconsin, I think. I'm Minnesota, sure. he Minnesota. was for, go, for yeah. a while. That's when I... Uh, yeah, because he was in North Carolina. <clears throat> Is that right? Yeah, for quite a while. And then he moved to Minnesota where he's at now, I guess. Yeah. And so I don't know. I never went and visited him there, but I, he calls me on the phone all the time. Yeah. And we sit and bullshit and reminisce nice. and talk about this, that, and whatever, yeah. and the state of things the way they are. Yeah. How, how do you feel? How do you feel about the state of way the state of the way things are? Yeah. Well, I don't know. At least I'm still tattooing. You know. Uh, when we closed the shop in '03, I retired. And that sucked. I had a heart attack immediately because I was just sitting around not doing anything. So I started setting in at a few shops. I I worked Shamrock Social Club on Mondays, and I went out to Vintage on Fridays, and then I was working with uh, Robert Atkinson on Saturdays. And so, I mean, I moved around a little bit and worked, you know, enough to where it kept me busy anyway. Right. And uh, then this place opened up there's it been a tattoo shop for 30 years and yeah, right by where i live the uh, i guess the guy just lost interest or whatever and consequently the shop went under they got evicted so i went and talked to the landlord and he you know i'd been a tattoo shop for 30 years so he knew a little bit about tattooing or about shops anyway and he knew who i was and so he rented me the building and uh yeah, I was retired. Now I'm just plain tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working like seven days a week. <laughs> Damn. Keep making it happen, huh? Yeah, and I still go out to Hollywood on Mondays. Uh, the other ones I cut loose, but yeah, I go out and hang out with Mark and Freddie, you know what I mean, and do a tattoo and here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, just something to do on Mondays. It's just more fun than yeah. than actually working. Yep. It's it's got. I, w- I would imagine it's nice to be around that creative 
vibe too. Yeah, and those guys. And I've known those guys since they were kids. You know what I mean? Friends, uh, family. Mark grew. Mark grew up on the Pike. Well, he grew up in Boston, but the first real job in tattooing he had was at the at the Rose on the Pike, and me and Colonel Todd broke him in. So he's family, you know. And uh, like when he was back east, he was just doing garage type shit and bike he'd go to bike clubs and tattoo the guys and you know there, there wasn't really legal to tattoo in boston and then he moved to new york and it wasn't legal to tattoo there either you know so his real first real job was out here talking about you know some of the guys that you work with and on mondays guys who become almost like family to you what kind of inspiration do you get from from those guys uh I don't know. You know, they have a different style of work than what I do usually. Uh, mostly Freddie and Mark do black and gray, and most of the guys in that shop do black and gray. And I do mostly traditional, but tattooing for as many years as I have, I do black and gray too. I just, people ask me for more traditional stuff than black and gray. I like I like doing it. I did a a Bob Terrell piece last week. It turned out great, and you know it looked just like the picture. Yeah. And uh, so I mean, I can do all of the other stuff. So it's just cool hanging out with the guys and bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah. We we talk more about cars and music and this and that and whatever than we do about tattooing because all of us have been tattooing for a number of years. Yeah. Are you still into cars? You still got uh, into cars or? Yeah, I'm building a hot rod right now. Uh, unlike a lot of tattooers today, anyway, when I first started tattooing, it was sort of like playing music, you know, don't quit your day job. And so I'm actually a Class A tool maker. I worked in North American Aviation as a tool maker, served an apprenticeship, became a Class A tool maker. And I was a ship fitter welder at Todd Shipyards in the 60s. And then... Uh, I worked in structural steel and machine shops in the 70s. And so I do a lot of that stuff. I grew up in a body shop working on cars and been building hot rods and cars most of my life, motorcycles. Uh, I had a welding shop. I was building frames and this, that, and whatever. Made gym equipment. Did all kinds of weird shit. Yeah. So building cars, I, I'm not like most of the guys, especially in the tattoo world, they... Say, well, I built this, and, and you find out later, oh, yeah, well, they sent it to so-and-so, and he made the frame, and then they sent it over here, and he did the body work, and then this other guy did the painting, and they traded for tattoos or whatever to get the stuff. But when I build a car, I actually build the frame from scratch. Wow. You know what I mean? I'm what in the process right of now? building the hot rod right now, when I have to, that's what I'm doing is building the frame. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a 1930 DeSoto. Wow. then I'm going to build a rat rod out of. So it'll be sitting on the ground with a big motor and all that kind of crazy you, shit. Will you bag it or? No. You no, because it's going to be a hot rod. The frame, you just notch the frame and... It, yeah, so I'm building low. the frame from scratch, so I don't really have to notch well, it. Well, not, not, yeah, but... <laughs> but that style, yeah. to a point where it's like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm going to put a Ford suicide front end on it. Mm -hmm. uh, when it goes through the firewall, it's going to be Z'd four inches, and so the frame itself will be probably three or four inches off the ground and then the body will be channeled to just 
above the bottom of the frame because you don't want the body dragging the ground. If anything hits, you want the frame to. Right. And uh, I built the motor from scratch. I, I picked up a 1976 small block Chevy, stripped it down to a bare block, put new main bearings, new rod bearings, new rings. The pistons were good, so I kept them. The... I mean, the whole motor is brand new. It's got a dual idler gear drive. It's got a high-rise manifold, six, 750 quadrajet, made by Edelbrock with mechanical secondary. It's got a vertex magneto. It's got O2 heads with bigger valves. It's got racing lifters, alloy push rods. I mean, it's, you know. Sounds the, like you're building a butte. It, it'll be putting over 400 horses to the ground. Wow. You know? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I got a Muncie four-speed uh, aluminum m22 which is the one everybody wants that i want to put in it and uh four nine inch posi so we already got all of the drivetrain it's just a matter of building the frame and starting to mount the body and starting to make it i have uh bucket seats out of a fire truck you know the guy that sits in the back on the hook and ladder uh-huh yeah i got a set of seats from from a friend of mine who used to work for the city and they were throwing these away so we i got them and had them reupholstered do you know what colors you're doing for the interior exterior? Uh, the seats are black, and and it's only going to have two seats. And uh, I'm probably just going to do black suede on the outside because I want it to, you know, it's a rat rod. Rat you don't rod, paint yeah. them, mm-hmm. you know. And the motor's all billet chrome, you know, and so it'll be cool. Yeah. Have you, have you uh, had a favorite? bike or car that you've built and you're just like damn i wish i still had that yeah shit. a bunch of them but yeah my favorite car They're i think was favorites. my my 51 merc that i built when i was okay. a kid yeah uh yeah i wrecked it and then i put it back together and i sold it because i was pissed off about it and uh to this day i'm still upset about selling it. i should have kept it i probably put 2,000 hours in that car wow been off the frame three times you know, it was chopped, channeled, and sectioned. Nose, deck, shaved. Both pans were rolled. Wow. I mean, cornered it. Everything you could possibly do to a car. The headlights, taillights were tunneled. Beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. I painted it. I used to work in a body shop as a painter, so. Right. Ama- sounds amazing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, when I was in high school, that's what I did all the way through high school was worked in a body shop. Yeah. and. I started out as the helper and ended up being the head painter by the time I graduated. That's, awesome. That's a lot of work. And yeah. I just said, fuck this, and went to work in the machine shop. <laughs> yeah. Easier work than the machine shop. Yeah, machine shop was a lot less work. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I, I read that you said um, in, in an article, I know you love tattooing. I mean, you wouldn't have done it for nearly 60 years if you didn't love it. Yeah. And they, the, the article talked about um, you talking about these core principles that people are losing these days, you know, and have lost maybe in, in tattooing. What do you think some of the things that people are, have lost that, that used to be a part of tattooing? Well, you know, the... You got 3,000 shops just in L.A., and consequently, you know, each shop's got at least three or four people in it, some of them six or seven or ten. So you got a lot of tattooers, 
and I would say probably less than a quarter of them actually served an apprenticeship where they actually learned what the hell they were doing. The other ones just grabbed some equipment and screwed with it until they could make it work a little bit, I guess. I'm not sure, but uh, you learned more in the apprenticeship than just how to tattoo. You know, uh, when I apprenticed somebody, the kids always kid about, you know, we worked down at the Pike. We, we learned how to work on cars and motorcycles and and build stuff and, and paint flash. And some of the most famous flash painters alive today learned how to paint flash from me. And I learned from one of the most famous flash painters, Phil Sims and Bob Shaw. And so consequently... I had a lot to teach them in that aspect. And being a machinist and a welder, I've always been involved in building machines and this and that and whatever. And consequently, when I apprentice somebody, they learn how to make everything. We're not talking learn how to make ink or learn how to make needles. We're talking everything. They learn how to make the machines from scratch. They know how to learn how to make the tubes. We made our own needle bars. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Learn how to paint. They learn how to build a power supply. I mean, everything. Yeah. You know, it, if you apprentice under me, you don't have to ever go to a supply company if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. You can make everything you use. I mean, everything. Yeah. And consequently, they don't have that anymore. They, yeah. they don't have the respect for the older guys that have been doing it for so many years. Uh, you know, back in the day, man, Bob Shaw walked in the tattoo shop. Everybody stopped what they were doing. Colonel Todd, same thing. You know, hey, what's up? You stopped what you were doing. You went over to talk to him. You shook your hand, gave him a hug, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, nowadays they don't have that. You know, there's a few of the guys that do. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know, but uh, most of the guys, they think, you know, just because they went to some art school or something that there's some great piece of shit, you know. Yeah. And Colonel Todd's favorite thing was uh, anybody gets an art degree, it just ruins them as a tattoo artist. <laughs> Do you think that's still valid today? Yeah, I would say so, yeah. <clears throat> you know, because uh, you go to art school and the first thing they teach you is you don't put outlines on anything. And let me think, you don't put outlines on tattoos and they just fucking completely go to shit. You know, the people nowadays, they, they don't have the, the, what you're talking about. Not only do they not have the apprenticeships and the history and whatever, or don't study it. Uh, they weren't around and consequently they don't realize they can't do that shit. Uh, Guy Atchison. I mean, Guy Atchison was an amazing tattooer. It still is. Mm -hmm. But he would put everything in multiple colors and layers, just like oil painting, because he was an oil painter. Mm -hmm. And Dean DeKine's getting his whole back lasered. Probably one of the most amazing tattoos I've ever seen in my life, but it's just fucking horrible now. Wow. That's you know? that pillar, those pillars, yeah. and it looks you, know, you can't see any of it now. Wow. It's all blurry and fucked up. Really? Because there's no carbon there. Mm -hmm. The carbon black holds the ink from spreading. And the only carbon-based ink we have is black. Mm -hmm. 
So if you do just color and no black, the ink is eventually going to look like you took a bunch of crayons and melted them and poured them on the floor. Now you can do the photorealistic color, don't get me wrong, but put some black around it. But things aren't just color in life. They have shading and, and shadows. Yeah. If you got a little bit of black, you don't have to do necessarily do lines, but you have to have some black. Yeah. And if you don't have it, the ink's just going to keep spreading. Perfect example, Sean Barber. Sean Barber is probably one of the most famous oil painters alive right now. Or one of. Right? Mm -hmm. He served a six-year apprenticeship in a traditional tattoo shop. Sean Barber does not tattoo like he oil paints. And it isn't because he can't, because God knows he can do it. You know what I mean? But he learned the right way, and he realizes that you have to have some black in the tattoo. Yeah, it's different. It's different on canvas. Than it's on, not the same, right? Than on skin. Yeah, it's a piece of living skin, and and the, it's living and changing and moving all the time. The new kids are putting 14, in, 14 needle outlines on everything, calling it traditional. You go look at all of the old traditional flash: Coleman, Bob Shaw, Burt Grimm's, Sailor Jerry. There's no fat fucking lines on that shit. No. They're using three and four needle outlines, five at the most. Yeah. You see that I, I have a, a sheet that is framed, or a, it's actually a, it's a larger window sheet that um, hung in Zeiss's shop. Mm -hmm. and Zeiss, yeah. Zeiss, Zeiss, sorry. Um, and it has, I mean, e each piece. That big. Only that Ten big. lines. I mean, you'd have to use a five-liner, you know. Or, you or know, tight three, probably. Tight th yeah, or even smaller to get a, the detail that's yeah. involved. And One of the most famous fucking tattooers of modern tattooing, right? Mm -hmm. You hear all these new guys that are talking about the, the fine-line tattooing coming out of the East L.A. Mexican cultures and whatever, which is, it's been reinvented by them, don't get me wrong. But... Look at George Burchette. Yeah. 1890s, he was doing single-needle portraits. Now, let me think. Who the fuck is the godfather of black and gray? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's George Burchette. I'm sorry. But he's the one that started the, the single-needle fine line stuff because he started doing it when they invented the tattoo machine. You know? And yeah. you look at his flash. It's got thin-ass fucking thin. lines. So, yeah, I talked to Chuck Eldridge about that. Yeah. And he said the same thing. It was... Thin, thin lines, and they were doing delicate work. That yeah, but it had black outlines. Mm -hmm. It was a traditional but black and gray style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Where do you think it's going? Uh, it, it keeps going in circles. It really does. Uh, the same thing happened in the '40s and '30s. They started using thicker lines and and this and that and whatever. They were doing small tattoos with a seven needle outliner. And on the West Coast, we come to realize that that shit was coming back from World War II in the 60s, and it looked like shit. It was horrible. I mean, you couldn't even tell what the stuff was, because every five years, the line is going to double. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if you start out with a line that's an eighth of an inch thick, which these kids are doing now, let me think, in 20 years, that's a half-inch thick line, pal. 
You think about that. Yeah, it's not going to look good. You can't get the look of an old tattoo today. You got to wait 30 years for it to be an old tattoo. Right. Yeah, I have tattoos on me that were done with the tight three that look like they were fives. But they're 30, 40, 50 years old. Right. They've and aged. They've aged good. Yeah. Because in Long Beach, on the West Coast, and Sailor Jerry in Hawaii, realized that shit was looking horrible coming back from World War II, and they started using tight threes and fours. Mm-hmm. You know, the only time they use fives and sevens is if they were doing a back piece. When did that change? In the 60s. <clears throat> in the 60s? Yeah. And like I say, it keeps going full circle because the same thing happened in the 1890s. They were using thin lines, and then they used thicker lines, and then they used thin lines, and now they're using thicker lines, and now they're using thin lines. And I've been around since the 60s, and consequently, I know why we were using the thinner lines, and it has nothing to do with looking cool. It has to do with it's going to look cool in 20 years. <laughs> right. You know, and make sure you're still happy with them guys that are using them fucking big old fat lines, 11 and 14 needle outlines. Their tattoos are going to look like shit in 20 years, you know, and they just they never learned. So they don't know. They think, oh, this is cool. I see a picture of this old tattoo and this is what it looks like. I want to look like that. Yeah, well, it looks like that because it's 40 years old. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's interesting to to hear somebody that's been. I had a great you know opportunity to, to hang out with Lyle Tuttle every once in a while, and um, I was at his house, and and he you know he says the same thing. Seeing the stuff that was being done, you know, forty fifty years ago, and seeing the stuff and seeing it now is completely different. Well, ball. and Lyle Tuttle apprenticed at Burt Grimm's in nineteen fifty six. <laughs> Bob yeah. Roberts apprenticed to Burt Gribbs in the 70s. So, I mean, there's a couple people that came out of that shop yeah. that there's, know what's up. Absolutely. A, a, a very steep history out of there. And, yeah. you know, I think also people are doing themselves a disservice to not educate themselves about that. You know, just like you said, mm-hmm. the they don't know the older guys that are around. They don't know what they've done. Or they choose not to... To, to do their due diligence and find that out, you know? Yeah, well, like I said, they, Colonel Todd said it best, an art degree ruins a tattooer. They they got this B.A. in art, and they think they know everything there is to know. Yeah. And art and tattooing have nothing to do with each other. It's a whole different ballgame. It's like you could be the greatest oil painter in the world, but you're not going to sculpt in steel unless you're a fucking welder. You know what I mean? You're not going to be able to get that shit stick together and do what you need to do. Right. I can actually sculpt just like clay. You know, solid sculpting with TIG welder. I have done it. But unless you're a really good TIG welder, you ain't going to do that. Right. Yeah, I, it's easier to teach a TIG welder to, to sculpt than it is to teach a sculptor to, to weld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that, what's the what's your favorite kind of welding, TIG or is it? Oh, I like it all. Yeah, yeah. I get certification in stick welding and TIG okay. welding and MIG welding. I've done submerged melt, inner shield, dual shield. Wow. Gas welding, you name it. You've done it, Rick. You've done yeah. a lot of shit, man. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Where where does the where does the Rick Walters hates you thing come from? Oh, that was a hilarious deal. Back in 1974, I went on a bike run with, with a couple of my friends. We had been on the road probably six, seven days at least. And I was up northern California and seen one of those photo booths. And back then, it actually was 25 cents. You know, the, you know, the, you hear everybody say it's 25 cent photo booth, so it costs two bucks. But now, you know, back in the 70s and 60s, it actually cost a quarter. That's where that came from. Right. And uh, so I went in the photo booth, and I got these pictures taken. And uh, I come home, and I give one of them to my sister and one to the old lady, and I don't know, even know what happened to the other ones. There was four of them. And, hell, like four or five years ago, my sister posted the picture up on, on Facebook. And so I screen saved it, and I was at a convention in Las Vegas, and I was hanging out with Matt Murphy uh -huh. from uh, Dead Man's Hand Tattoo Supply. And I showed him the picture, and he says, oh, that's badass. He says, text me that picture. So I texted it to him. Two weeks later in the mail, I get this package of stickers that said, Rick Walters hates you. And I just sort of laughed. And so I gave a few of them out, and I put a few of them up here and there and whatever, and it just sort of took off. I mean, uh, in the last four years, I think I've bought 5,000 of them. And I just recently ordered 5,000 more because I got a deal on them. But... uh yeah, it sort of took on a life of its own. It did. Yeah, it was Absolutely. sort of funny. But it was just this crazy old picture from the 70s that if you look at the picture real close, I'm wearing a tank top and it's all greasy and dirty because I'd been on the road for like seven days. <laughs> That's awesome. But, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's funny. Yeah, yeah, you know, what the hell, something different. Yeah, you know. Them stickers are nice, all over the world. Yeah, it makes a nice sticker. Yeah. Yeah, well, and they're like they were in the Amsterdam Tattoo Museum. They're Horiyoshi. I have a picture of Horiyoshi holding one of them. Nice. I mean, they're in they're in uh, Tennille Napoli, who's one of the Sullen Girls. You know her? Mm -hmm. Oh, I don't know her, chick. but I, I you know, know who she is. Yep. Okay, you go is. on her her Instagram, and there's probably twenty pictures of her doing selfies in the mirror, and the back of her phone says Rick Walters hates you. <laughs> And it's been on there for years. Oh, that's awesome. I just gave her a whole stack of new stickers last year so that she could replace them. Because <laughs> they were getting so worn you could barely see it. Yeah. Where's the favorite place you've traveled? Oh, I don't know. I've traveled all over the United States. I, I haven't been to Europe. I just really don't have a big desire to go there, to be real honest with you. Someday I'd like to go to Japan, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Maybe to Ireland because that's where I'm from, you know. Yeah. But uh, I've been to Hawaii and all over the country. I'm in New York. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. And I've done that tattooing and biking. I, I've been across the United States four times on a rigid frame Harley. You know, my back's just fine, pal. Yeah, it's just knowing how to set the bike up. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. A lot, of years, a lot of years of riding. Yeah, I started when I was 12, I think. Yeah. Got dirt bikes and shit and then... Yeah. When I was 17, I got my first Harley. 
before that I had a rigid frame triumph and it was a chopper yeah. I always kid because I see the guys with triumphs and I laugh and I'm, oh, I used to have one of those when I was 15 <laughs> and they go, how did you like to set your bikes up as far as like did you like any rake in the no I, I used to own a welding shop and I built frames and I did all that stupid shit the goosenecking and raking and I mean you know four foot over front ends that were like the bike was nine ten feet long but uh, I usually just go straight up like six inches without raking them at all. Uh, the reason I go up like that is because I like to be able to lay the bike over and handle with it, you know, and consequently uh, it has a sort of an old school chopper look, but I mean, I, I do it just because I, I want to be able to lay it into turns. I don't want a dragon bottom. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what's next for you, Rick? What's uh, going to continue just working here? Do you have any travels planned? or? Well, I go to Hawaii every year. Yeah. Uh, the convention over there is fun. Mm. I stay tattooing quite often, you know. Good. And, and uh, you know, hell, it's a trip to Hawaii. What the yeah. hell? Just go over there for a week or two and yep. hang out. You've actually been uh, uh, in the background of one of my podcasts with Big Island Mike. Oh yeah, yeah, Mike yeah, Castillo. Yeah. You were out there, and 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 uh, Freddie and, and yeah. his son were there, and yeah, at the convention, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, yep, yeah. Last yeah. year I only got to stay for a week because I just opened the new shop. Yeah, but the year before I stayed for two weeks and went and ride motorcycles all over the island and shit. It was pretty fun. Nice. Yeah. Tell tell people where the where the new shop is, and if they wanted to get a Big Eagle, how they can do that. Oh yeah, just come on down. Uh, we're on. Pacific Coast Highway in Sunset Beach. It's Rick Walters World Famous. It's 16873. And the phone number is 562-592-4INC. I like it. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's easy to find. It's right there on the PCH. And a Big Eagle, no problem. You want it on your chest, probably run around 700 bucks. You want it on your back, you're looking around 500 because it's a lot quicker and easier. Yeah. And I'm one of the fastest guys at doing it, so I can afford to, s to sell it that cheap. Uh, most people, you're probably looking at twelve to 1500 for that same eagle. Mm -hmm. But I do it in two hours, so it don't matter. <laughs> you knock it out quick, man. That's oh, great. Yeah. That's that good. It hurts, man. I want to get it over with. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you're doing, the, the, you're doing a client the, a service. Well, and believe it or not, when you move that fast, it doesn't hurt as much. It's when you go slow as it hurts. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Rick, I appreciate you sitting down with me. It's been a pleasure for me to talk with you. Um, I hope we get many more of these in. Yeah, Thanks. and uh, I'd like to say something uh, and acknowledge a couple of my sponsors because I have Absolutely. some sponsors. Uh, we're looking at Mithra Needles. I have my own set of Fusion Ink. And uh, Adam's been so good to me. He's sponsored me with Ink for 20 years now. He's mm -hmm. a good friend of mine now. Great. And uh, also Inkies, which you're familiar with, I'm sure. Is yeah. It's associated with Sullen. And yep. uh, Sean has been nothing but helpful. He gives me all the grease and spray and numbing cream that I want. Mm -hmm. You know, he's really a good guy. I've known, known him for many, many years. My, my daughter used to work with his wife. Okay. Back probably in the 80s. Yeah. And That's so great. thanks for having me down here. It's been a fun time. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it, man.
Have a good day. Uh, yeah, you too. If you're a shop owner, you know how important it is to have a reliable place to order your tattoo shop supplies. Since 1996, Kingpin Tattoo Supply has worked to provide the tattoo professional the highest quality supplies at the best possible price. If you need a reliable supply company, check out Kingpin Tattoo Supply at www.kingpintattoosupply.com. When you make an order, be sure to let them know you heard Kingpin mentioned on Sullen Radio. Hi, this is Joe Swanson with Sullen Radio. I use my Waterloo Tattoo Workstation every day I tattoo. Are you interested in working off a tattoo workstation that has been designed specifically for tattooing with input from tattoo artists? Do you want a workstation that helps keep your tools and equipment well organized? If you haven't yet seen Waterloo's tattoo workstations on TV shows like Spike TV's Ink Master and Tattoo Nightmares, do yourself a favor and take a look at waterloo-tattoo-storage.com. These versatile workstations are available in two sizes that each come with Waterloo's full-width drip guard. As a tattooer, if you've ever knocked over your rinse cup during a tattoo, you know how important it is to have a stainless steel work surface designed for easy cleaning and maximum protection against spills. Waterloo workstations come on four swivel casters for easy maneuverability within the tattoo shop. With the increasing use of technology in mind, Waterloo Tattoo Workstations also come with a repositionable six outlet power strip with two USB ports that can easily power your lighting laptops and personal electronics. Plenty of usable space and drawer organizers keep your tattoo tools and equipment safe and in their place. Check out WaterlooTattooStorage.com and at WaterlooTattoo on Instagram for the best tattoo storage workstation on the market.